You're listening to the Long Overdue Podcast. This is Denise, and we have Don, and Chris is here recording. He may or may not say hi. We're not sure yet. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> so this episode is actually the introduction to a new segment that Don and I will be doing that we are calling Do We Like Murder? Spelled D-E-W-E-Y. Do we <laughs> like murder? Because we also like wordplay. And the answer to that, dear listeners, is that yes, yes, we do like murder. And we're going to talk about true crime books that we have here at the library. I've read one title, and Don has read another one. And then we'll just be talking about it, talking about what we read, discussing the murders that we've been reading about. Because it's all fascinating. It is. Like, I mean, think about JFK. I mean, really, who's Mm -hmm. not fascinated with stuff like that? Yeah. So... Just yes. got to talk about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, let's see, Don, what is it that you've read? So I read the book Scream at the Sky, and it is Five Texas Murders and One Man's Crusade for Justice. And it's written by Carlton Stowers. So, it's in Texas. Yeah. So it kind of gives a good setting for us to all kind of understand what's transpiring mm-hmm. throughout. Um, this book was came out in 2003, <clears throat> I believe is the copyright. Yeah, 2003. So it's a little bit older, mm-hmm. but it was very fascinating. Okay. So it starts out with a murder of a young lady in Wichita Falls, mm-hmm. and um, her name was Terry Sims. And she um, was staying with a friend, and her friend had to go back to work. And uh, when she came home the next day, her friend was dead in her house. Wow. And she knew in- immediately when she got home, walking through the house, that something was, was up mm-hmm. because of the way the house was and, and everything. And they found her in the back room, and it was, I guess, a very brutal murder Mm -hmm. and then there were three other murders that happened specifically in wichita falls and it happened over a a couple year period i believe it was after the second murder the guy who did it actually called in and confessed Oh. He had taken a trip down to Galveston, and I think he was thinking about killing himself and thought better of it. I don't know if that's the right phrase. (laughs) (laughs) Decided against it. There you go. (laughs) And um, anyway, so he confessed. So at that time, it was, we knew who it was. And Mm -hmm. so it was this Varian Wardrip, W-A-R-D-R-I-P. So, so anyway, he calls and confesses, and they convict him, and they put him in jail for 35 years. But then he gets paroled. Mm-hmm. Um, 
so I was kind of freaking out because I'm like, I don't know if I want to talk about some guy who's been yeah, who's out there. <laughs> it's been parole. And just kind of freaking. Living in Wichita Falls. <laughs> right. <laughs> anyway, so I was kind of curious because this happened in the late 80s, first of all. Mm-hmm. Did you know about this? I mean, you were pretty young. Yeah. Probably. No, I hadn't heard about it. You didn't know anything. Chris, mm-hmm. did you know anything about it? No, you two are both pretty young. I was just kind of curious. Sometimes that stuff is... Yeah, yeah, especially since it's pretty close. Right. So anyway, this um, this murderer had um, also, was also a rapist. And so he killed two... Well, he killed those two. Then he killed the two others in Wichita Falls. And... Um, when it all came down to the end, they realized he had actually murdered someone else when he had been down in Fort Worth. Oh. Um, a mother and um, wife. And, yeah, so it's mm. very interesting. So this all happened through, like, the first part before he went to prison was set in the 80s and it was a year two years like his His, the the crimes happened between 84 and 86 okay so yes 1984 um the first one happened and then the other ones happened three of them in 85 and then one in 86 and uh after the second well, after he was in prison the first time, he was released on mm-hmm. parole, and they put an ankle monitor on him. And they, um, I guess he was on good behavior because he met some woman, and they got married, mm-hmm. and then he was starting to go to church, and so everybody thought he was a really good guy, mm-hmm. and... Um, they they were able to I want to say trick him, but they were able to get his DNA mm-hmm. uh, without him knowing it. Because yeah. if you um, like drink out of a cup and then put it in the trash, it's no longer you have no expectation of privacy, That's right? It's public. You have released yeah, it. At your trash your trash is public domain, dude. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Take through your trash and find out all kinds of things about so you. So things, things you post on Facebook, <laughs> things you throw in the trash, it's all... It's all the same. It's all out there for anybody. <laughs> That's right. That's an interesting connection there. <laughs> Which is another interesting topic. Because this was like before technology. Mm-hmm. No cell phones, no internet yeah. kind of stuff. You know, people are just out doing their stuff mm-hmm. and... Connections aren't being made, I think, as quickly yeah. because of that. Um, so anyway, they take his cup, the the cop did, and mm-hmm. asked if he could use it as a spit cup. And the guy was like, yeah, go ahead. And so they took it in and got his DNA, and it matched the other girls, the, the young ladies. And so they were able to get another conviction. Um, and so for his second conviction, was those also murders that he did in the 80s? Or when he got out, did he start killing again? 
Well, and that's what, you know, sorry, this has been a a few weeks since Mm -hmm. I've read this book. Um, I was trying to figure out the timeline again in my head because he committed the murders, but he didn't really feel like he remembered it. He was able to talk himself out of the fact that, did I do it? No, Mm -hmm. they feel like it's this other person. And so he kind of talked himself out of being responsible hmm. and and all that. So I think what happened is that at a certain point he he turned himself in for that one, but mm-hmm. he had already committed several. Yeah. Um but he just didn't um feel bad about those enough, I guess, or mm-hmm. realize in his head that they were Yeah. Well, and attributed to him, and well, and it yeah. sounds like he, at some point, he felt guilty, like guilty enough to contemplate suicide, right? And so, before that point, he could have had so much guilt that he was just like, "I didn't do that." Yeah, just sort of blocked it out. Yes, so very odd. Yeah. Anyway, I d- he didn't commit any murders after because he had his his bracelet on his or the ankle thing mm-hmm. on, and so they were tracking his every move. He really could not go anywhere other than to work and to home, um, in church, in church right? <laughs> <laughs> so um, I don't believe he could go to the grocery store. He couldn't. He couldn't go anywhere mm-hmm. unless unless it was in his little yes. area of yeah. So. Um, all of the murders were very, very brutal, mm-hmm. and um, they were not found right away. So there was a lot of decay, mm-hmm. I think, in the in the bodies that were found. Um, and forensic science at that time wasn't. I mean, it was a lot more advanced than it was like in the sixties and seventies, but it still wasn't. They could give you blood type. Yeah, you know, they couldn't really be like, oh, well, this DNA matches that. And say, oh, well, this blood type is the same blood type as that. Yes. And thankfully, they were able to, they had saved enough stuff mm-hmm. that they were able to test the DNA. So when when he had um, been arrested, or they were bringing him back up from Galveston after he had said that he had done that mm-hmm. one murder, um, he was rambling in the car, just wouldn't shut up and the police officers were you know tired of him talking but they he <laughs> happened to remember a name uh, or, or he spit out some name mm-hmm. and they must have I don't know they were documenting somehow and that name got put in the file and that's what got him convicted for the second time because eventually it became a, pretty much a cold case file yeah and they went back and they were looking at it and somebody saw that name and started looking into what had happened and made connections that he mm-hmm. knew her. And so that's how he brought himself down. Wow. Yeah. It's crazy. It is crazy. Yes? And people should always just let them talk. Just yeah. Let them talk. Right. So, so what you're saying is is there that he had done multiple murders, but he only confessed to one? Yes. Mm-hmm. That's really weird. Isn't it weird? <laughs> It is it's very, very odd. Yeah. And it's hard because, you know, I mean, the people who gave this author the story, per mm-hmm. se, was one of the victim's sisters or family. 
so you don't know. I mean, it wasn't like like he was telling the story and maybe what was going mm-hmm. on in his head. Not that I would have believed it anyway. Right. So, so anyway, yeah. And were they all single ladies? Or was it? They were all single. They all knew him. Oh, and, okay. Um, so it wasn't like a stranger murdered. Like they had some kind of connection to him. Yes, I think um, co-workers, one lady mm-hmm. had worked in a bar and he would come in uh, and she finally, um, she actually had talked with her dad and said, what happens if um, you really don't like somebody, but you don't want to say no to them? I mean, mm-hmm. you still want to, you know, kind of be their friend, but... Mm-hmm. Um, the advice that he gave was um, not, I, I think he rethought what he should have said. I don't remember his exact words, but mm-hmm. um, she was murdered right after that. So uh, he felt very guilty yeah. about the advice he'd given his daughter. So um, I believe he took her home and... So he knew where she lived mm-hmm. and got in her house. And, yeah. And he he was on drugs. He did drugs and alcohol and was actually married, I believe. Yeah, it was weird. I wonder if that's how he could have convinced himself that he didn't commit these other murders. Was it maybe he was high? And so it was like a, did I do that or was I just high? Right. Was I hallucinating? Yeah. Or, yeah. Well, and he also had a lot of anger, mm-hmm. and a, a lot of it stemmed from his, he said, his wife, because she would get on him about a lot of stuff and yell at him and, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but then he also said that he had a really bad childhood, and they were poor, and he was picked on a lot. And then his brother at the end said that's a load of crap, because... We didn't live in a, a two-room house. We had a two-story house, and you had four-wheelers and mm-hmm. all this other stuff. So we were not poor, and yeah, it sounded like they had very loving parents. Yeah, which is kind of scary. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but man, drugs can do all kinds of things to you. That's so you could have been brought up true. in a great family with you know supportive parents. And then start doing the drugs and yeah, just lose it all. Yes. So when when he was caught the second time, his wife, his current wife, mm-hmm. the second wife, and obviously his congregation were all by his side. No, he didn't do this and, and everything. And You can't argue with DNA. No. Yeah. They, you cannot. <laughs> They found out wrong, so so sad. Um, what did I find out about him? He was sentenced to death for the three murders. Okay. Death row three times. But, let's see, in 2008, a federal magistrate recommended that the death penalty be penalty be overturned because he received ineffective defense in his trial which i think is a load of crap Uh 
personally, I mean, who can argue with the DNA, right? Right. I mean, and he confessed to that other one. I guess he wasn't being tried for that one at the time. But in 2011, they reversed that. Um, let's see. Reversed a lower court ruling that ordered the state of Texas to either give Waldrop a new sentencing trial or agreed to giving him a life sentence. Hmm. So they reversed that. So he is still on death row. Um, I just looked it up. Mm-hmm. And he is, I had it down here somewhere. Is it Huntsville? It is not. That's why I was looking. I know. (laughs) Everything's Huntsville. If you're in prison for a serious crime, you're in Huntsville. (laughs) Polunsky. Current facility is Polunsky. So I don't think that's in Huntsville. Maybe it is Huntsville. I didn't think it was because something else I saw had a... um, location mm-hmm. and it, i thought it had another city on it yeah so that's where he is now still yes. alive as of 2018 as of actually 20 minutes ago when i checked <laughs> you don't have to worry about him being just down the road anymore. Right. <laughs> in Wichita Falls. that is very it's true okay. <sighs> yes he's on death row they haven't reversed it but you know it's i mean he's a murderer mm-hmm. convicted Sentenced to death. Sentenced to death. And then, you know, potentially get parole. Obviously not. That's been overturned. But do you change? I mean, he was proven a liar. His his brother mm-hmm. even said he was a liar. Um, but you think, you've been in prison for 100 and, oh, 18 years, 166 days. Is that I don't want to say is that enough. I don't think it's enough. I think no. he deserves to be on death row personally. Yeah. Sorry. No, uh, I agree. Uh, but if he did get out, he would be older. Mm-hmm. I mean, when a murderer gets out of jail and he's in his 70s, is he still going to go out and murder? I don't know. Well, I mean, you know what I'm thinking? Yes, you think so? I, I think, yeah, I think that he's just as capable... Yeah, eighteen years later at seventy, as he was back then, and okay, and, and, for, honest, and so, for it to be a serial type situation because he killed multiple people. Yes, yes, it wasn't a heat of. They weren't know. crimes of passion. Yeah, or like yeah, that. yeah. I mean, I I think that, like I said, he deserves to be there because he did heinous things to these mm-hmm. people, and I mean, just for your consequences. I think, yeah, that's deserved. But that just brought up that other question of, which I think is a huge question of if if prisoners can be rehabilitated well, or honestly, this is probably a discussion for another podcast, maybe maybe another book. Or <laughs> I something. don't know. I mean, this <laughs> but, is like part of our. But just yeah. the, the little bit that I know about about prison and and th- things like that is that. A lot of times, prison can actually make people worse. Mm-hmm. Oh, it it doesn't correct anything. Yeah, very interesting. Yeah, that's I, probably true. I agree with that. And also, after being in prison for that long, uh-huh. they get into a type of mindset where they can't really function in the outside world because it's not structured yeah. the same way. 
Mm-hmm. And so a lot of times they'll go and reoffend so they can get sent back, which is weird and sad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But being in prison for that long just sort of changes you. But for something like this, where he was a rapist and then a, and escalated to murder, mm-hmm. um, that's very ingrained. That's very psychosexual. I think if he was not monitored mm-hmm. 24-7, he would have reoffended in some way. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Because they knew where he was mm-hmm. every minute of every day. Yeah, I think if you so, figure out a way to bypass that or that hadn't he he hadn't been monitored the entire time, I think he would have figured out a way. Well, and that's part of the thing too is where he was living was in Archer City and um because it was like a different jurisdiction, mm-hmm. they wanted to make sure he was back in Wichita Falls when they actually arrested him. And so the um uh, parole officer contacted him and said, uh, we're going to be able to get your ankle thing off early. And so he was like all excited about that. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking, oh my gosh, he is probably thinking he can go out and just and do people. something. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Uh, which is very interesting. He didn't murder his wife, even though she was like. The whole reason that he claimed. That he was claims, the whole reason yes. that she was, that he was out there doing these horrible things right. because of her. Yes. So but, anyway. that would, but that would have been too obvious, wouldn't it? Yeah. <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> yeah. Always investigate the significant other first yeah, before right. you start looking outside of that into friend circles and acquaintances. Yes. So it's crazy that, you know, it took so long for them to find him, but... It's good that they did, because mm-hmm. it would have it would have continued. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's no doubt about that. Yeah. So yeah, I, I yeah, I don't think he would have stopped until he was caught, or someone yeah stopped him. Mm-hmm. Man, that is weird. Yeah, it is weird. I don't know. I just it's just I can't even believe that people do this stuff. And so just to think about it and, mm-hmm. and to read these books, I mean. The authors would have to be so involved mentally in the in what happened. Mm-hmm. I mean, listening to all these stories from all the victims and talking to all these people and reading whatever you know Police reports. reports and yeah, and um, that could get almost a little crazy too. Mm-hmm. This author was very good. I've re- I would read more of his books. He did read uh, write about a. Um, a murder that happened in Waco Ooh. as well. So, <laughs> Carlton Stowers. You're sticking really close to home. <laughs> well, you know, one thing leads to another. I don't know. <laughs> well, let me just say, too, I had started reading a book that we had talked about on another podcast, I believe, called, I think they just called it Missoula. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, so that's basically my hometown within a few few miles. And the way they started that book, I was so mad at that author, I, I just really didn't even want to read the book anymore. Uh, he had lost his credibility with me. Mm-hmm. So this guy, um, when he, he started writing the book, talked about memory mm-hmm. and how it's not exactly right the way it is, I guess. It's yeah. not 
foolproof, I guess. And so he talked a little bit about that. And then he went into the setting and he talked about Wichita Falls. I don't know as much about Wichita Falls as I did my hometown, obviously, Mm -hmm. but it made me feel a lot better about it. It felt like he did his research and he was saying true things about the Mm -hmm. town, uh, which gave him even more credibility in telling the story that he was telling. So, yeah, memory is a weird thing. Yeah. Eyewitness accounts are often incorrect. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the times, whenever people give like a description, they can be off a little. And it's it's all, I don't know, it's all like interpretive. You see it one way, someone standing right next to you saw it kind of the same way, but uh-huh. a little different. Yeah. So weird. So, yes. yeah, it's amazing we catch murderers at all. <laughs> That's a good point. Well, it's we just had a training on that. Yeah. Where they talked about how in a stress a stressful situation, it's oh. funny the things you remember and the things you don't. The things you focus on. Okay, yeah. so not even in a stressful, stressful situation. Driving around with my husband, uh, I will try to give directions back to him like oh when we were driving over there it was next to the mcdonald's Mm -hmm. and then if he were giving the same directions or even my son actually they would say oh yeah it was next to the auto zone or there was a home (laughs) depot there (laughs) they notice different things than i do (laughs) (laughs) you're like there's a home depot there (laughs) who cares about that really there's a mcdonald's (laughs) (laughs) okay maybe that wasn't the best example <laughs> I was thinking food, restaurants. That's me. That's Tell me okay. about the food. It's cool. <laughs> if you need to stop somewhere, that's where you're going to want to stop. Yeah. Not at the Home Depot. No. <laughs> Although, typically, Lowe's Home Improvement, they have good bathrooms. Yeah. Just so you know. <laughs> <laughs> if you're traveling and you see one, <laughs> it's just as easy to stop in there. Okay. And I don't think they expect you to purchase something (laughs) right (laughs) you can just go in get out (laughs) okay refocus so what book did you read denise i read i'll be gone in the dark one woman's obsessive search for the golden state killer by michelle mcnamara so the golden state is California. california okay so this um the golden state killer is what michelle McNamara coined him as because starting in the 70s, starting in June of 1976 to 1979, he was known as the East Area Rapist. You even have a map. Yeah, there's a map. Okay. Go ahead. Um, And actually before that, in 1974 to December of 1975, um, and they recently did just attribute these to him too, but he was also known as the Vizala ransacker. So he would like break into people's homes and just steal weird little things, like nothing of value except for like emotional. Okay, stop. We, when I was growing up, had the everybody called him the panty raider uh-huh. because he would break into people's houses, and that's all he would do is yeah. take stuff out of the women's uh, underwear drawer. Yeah. I bet he became something a lot worse than that. Scary. And then in uh, 1979 to 1986, he was known as the original Night Stalker. 
So he had different names, and not until the 90s with DNA testing that they realized that they were they all, are all the same guy. Wow. So she coined him as the Golden State Killer, and that is what they call him okay. now because of Michelle McNamara. Okay. He's the Golden State Killer. And this is a new book. This just came out. Yeah, this just came out earlier this year, I believe. So, Michelle McNamara is a true crime writer. She has her, a blog called True Crime Diary, which, as of a couple of days ago, is still up and available for people to look at. Uh, Michelle McNamara actually died in 2016. Oh. She um, died from a undiagnosed heart complication mm-hmm. and um, an accidental overdose of some prescription medicine. Oh. So she didn't know that she had this heart condition, took some medicine, and then died in her sleep. Okay. Um, she actually died before she finished writing this book. And her research assistant mm-hmm. and one of her close colleagues and her husband, Patton Oswalt, got together to piece the rest of the book together. Wow. So part one and part two is her writing, and there's several editor notes throughout, mm-hmm. basically saying that this chapter was pieced together from her blog and um, an article that she had been working on for the LA Times and things like that. So okay. most of it is her own work up until part three, where they kind of just sort of fill in the holes of where she left off to where they were. Okay, so let me ask a question about her blog. Is it only about this person? No. It's just true true crime. crime. Okay. Mm -hmm. She became obsessed with the Golden State Killer because she thought it was solvable. He left tons of DNA. He left shoe prints. You know, she was sure that they could solve it, Mm -hmm. that it was possible to, to catch this guy. Um... The last attack was in 1986, and as of yesterday, they had no idea who he was. They actually caught him today. I cannot believe that. I couldn't believe it either. I logged onto Twitter, <laughs> and, it, and the Golden State Killer was trending. I'm like, <gasps> and I clicked on it, and I was like, they caught him. And I'm like, oh my gosh, they caught him. Oh because they were telling me through this whole book that they didn't know who he was. They didn't, they didn't know, know he, he had died. They had no idea, because he just stopped in 1986. Oh my gosh. He just stopped. And he was responsible for, he was responsible for like 50 rapes and 12 murders. Wow. And um, wow, throughout California. And they, they found him, and he was still living in Sacramento. He's been there the whole time. And they found him not because he had committed another crime. They found him through DNA. They finally matched his DNA to the samples that they have been collecting for decades. He had been arrested in 1979 Okay, for shoplifting. He stole a can of dog repellent and a hammer and was caught and he was arrested. What do you need dog repellent and a hammer for? Gee. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> and he was actually a police officer up until that point when he got arrested for shoplifting. Oh, my gosh. So he um, was a police officer for like a for neighboring town. Uh-huh. But still, like, one of the theories that 
she talks about in the book is that they thought that he was a police officer. Like, it had been thrown out there that maybe he was a cop. Uh-huh. Because he seemed to always be a step ahead of them. Or not necessarily a step ahead, but they'd be like, oh, we figured out this pattern or we figured out that he's doing this. And then he would suddenly change what he was doing or he would move to a different county, like start attacking in a different county. And And so did they realize that that was happening? They just figured that that person just stopped. Well, they didn't talk to each other. The different counties didn't talk to each other. Okay. It was, oh, he's attacking here and... They didn't realize that this guy was the same guy from this other county. Mm-hmm. Because they, and up until the 90s, when they actually connected him to DNA, several of those police forces were still doubting that it was the same guy. Really? And it's just like, so you think someone else is breaking into couples' homes and making the woman tie up her husband, raping the woman, then bludgeoning them to death? And you think it's two different guys? Yeah. Like, there are some very signature things that he Details. Did. Yeah. And so, but yeah, for the longest time, there was a couple of counties that were like, yeah, I think this is the same guy. Uh-huh. And we should work together. And while others were like, no, that's not the same guy. Until DNA came back and it's like, oh, look at that. Huh. It's the same guy all over this place. Right. That, I think, also helped him get away a lot mm-hmm. was because he would hit a, a certain neighborhood in a certain county and then he would move on to somewhere else and so so he knew he knew that they wouldn't talk to each other uh-huh yeah wow yeah he he seemed like he had a lot of like insider type information uh-huh. that he probably had because he was a cop and he had other cop friends Okay, so let me get this straight. You said he was arrested in 79, mm-hmm. and then he was no longer a police officer? But he then quit. He yeah, because he was arrested for shoplifting, uh-huh. and he decided to go ahead and take it to trial, and he resigned from being a police officer. He was probably going to be fired. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> but, so what did he, I mean, he was still doing this through 86, so mm-hmm. during that time... He just kind of probably knew what the pattern needed to be. Right. Yeah. And probably was watching the news and realizing mm-hmm. kind of what they had and where they were at and, and could probably read into their news reports a little right. bit. Yeah. Oh, they don't want to give too much sense. information mm-hmm. or whatever. One of the things um, that they're sure of is that he did attend like town hall meetings and things like that. Because in 1976 to 77, mm-hmm. he was hitting Sacramento area. So there's what a lot of people refer to as the famous town hall meeting picture. Because mm-hmm. there's a picture, and there's one in the book, and you can probably find it online, um, where two detectives that are working on the Sacramento area, East Area Rapist, Mm-hmm. murders and, or crimes um, has a town hall meeting and a lot of the citizens come because I mean there's terror and panic like he is legit breaking into houses with couples like husband and wife are sleeping in bed together and suddenly there's a guy flashing a flashlight in their eyes and wow. they have no idea what's going on and so 
you know, they want to keep the public informed and alert, but also kind of calm and try to get leads because they have no idea who this guy is. Uh-huh. They know that he prowls around the neighborhood weeks in advance. And knows. Hmm. Yeah. And hmm. so he starts just checking to see, you know, what time people go to bed, where they go, where they are, who's out and about. You are being watched. Yeah. Think about that. Anyway. And so they have a town hall meeting. Mm-hmm. And at this meeting, someone takes a photograph of the crowd. News, you know, just taking a picture of the town hall meeting for media purposes. Mm-hmm. And during this town hall meeting, um, a guy stands up and he starts having a heated discussion with one of the detectives because he he cannot understand how someone is breaking into houses with the husband being right there. Right. And how how are these men just letting their wives get raped? And like, I mean, he was just going on and on. Uh-huh. Well, six months later, guess who got hit up? Oh. And so the, it was a very clear, he's going to the town hall meetings. He's there. He's blending in. People wow. don't, don't it's see like, him. Don't stand up and say anything because you might be the next target. Yeah. <sighs> okay. That's so freaky. And so now that we know that he was a police officer, he could have been there mm-hmm. dressed as a cop. And who would have thought twice about that? Right. There was police officers all over the place. Yeah. And it's just so fascinating that he just got caught. Yeah. This morning. This morning. And we were already going to plan to talk about this book. Yes. Yes. So we were talking before about him not being caught yet. Mm -hmm. And us talking about this. And it's like, well, was he dead or was he not? Right. It's like. A lot of people thought that he was dead because we come back to the, you don't just stop doing this. And so they haven't really quite figured out why he stopped. Did he stop because he knew that things were progressing in a, in a in a way that he was leaving too much evidence behind? Did he get married and have someone that was willing to play, you know, sex games with him that he didn't need to go out? Like mm-hmm. fascinating. So now this is going to be in the news, mm-hmm. and we get to follow it to find out what happened. Yes. Well, they matched his DNA, so... That's 20 years. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Since his... But maybe hear his... I don't want to say hear his side of the story, but hear his side of the story. I mean, like, what he's been doing. For yeah, the last I want to know years. what he's been doing. Yeah. <laughs> because he's 72 now? Yep. 72. His name is Joseph James D'Angelo Jr., and he is 72. He has been charged with two counts of murder for the Sacramento County. Okay. I was going to say only two. Yeah. Well, I would save a few so of those too, just in case. <laughs> <laughs> just in case. So yeah, the last, the, the final victim was to believe, uh, is believed to be an 18 year old who was killed in 1986. So I think that that was the last one. And again, with DNA, mm-hmm. they'd be able to tie more to him if, if there were more. He was a police officer in California, like I said, until he was accused of shoplifting, dog repellent, and a hammer. So it was shortly after that, um, in 1979, when he was fired 
or resigned. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to say fired because he was probably going to be fired. So they, he, he took the, he took the case to trial and the clerk testified that he found a hammer in D'Angelo's pants while they struggled in a back room of the store. He then tried to escape. Another clerk testified that he saw D'Angelo take a can of dog repellent out of the waistband of his trousers. So, he was sentenced to six months of probation and a $100 fine for, well, I mean, he was shoplifting. Uh-huh. <laughs> right. Sometimes when you read things like that, it's just like, why did you let him go? I was like, well, it was shoplifting. He right. was charged with shoplifting. We didn't know. <laughs> yes, at that time. They didn't know. But, so he had also served in the U.S. Navy. Oh. So, and that was one of the other things was that they thought that he had some kind of military training because when he went from raping people, raping women, mm-hmm. then he went to, from um, from that to breaking into couples' homes, tying them up, raping the woman, and then from there he went to murder. So he escalated from single rape to couples to murder. And so when he was um, attacking women... They were just by themselves. He would tie them up. Mm-hmm. He would often like tie them up, untie, retie the knots until they were just right. Oh. And there was always like some weird like diamond knot, which is supposed to be some kind of complicated. Oh yeah. And so they thought that he had military experience. Mm-hmm. And he did. Let me just say, I just had like some flashback. I mean, you know how like these memories come back in mm-hmm. and. It wasn't anything specific, but when you said something about going into the home and tying up the man and mm-hmm. and raping uh, the wife, I vaguely remember that. Like being, I don't know how if I'd heard it on the news or if it was mm-hmm. conversation with my family, you know, because I was eight, six to eight. Mm-hmm. I mean, early, yeah, eighties. So I probably yeah. would have remembered. <laughs> Oh, and one of the things that he did when he would attack couples um, before he started murdering them, mm-hmm. he um, would have the wife tie up the husband, and then he would get, like, dishes, like, mm-hmm. from the kitchen and put them on top of the husband, and he would tell them that if he heard the dishes, like, fall or anything like that, that he would kill the wife. Oh. So then they, of course, couldn't move because they had these dishes on them. Right. And they were tied. So if the husband tried to do anything and knocked over the dishes, he would know. Oh, my gosh. So he was doing stuff like that, which is just... That's horrible. Yeah. It's, it's crazy. <laughs> but that's how he, he kept the husband from doing, anything. from doing anything, from trying to get away or anything like that. Yeah. And he... Um, there was a couple of accounts where... Some of the women said that after he raped them, like he would cry, mm-hmm. and he would say something that they thought was either um, "I'm sorry, mommy" or "I'm sorry, Bonnie." Oh, and then he would go from like "I'm sorry" to "I hate you," and they weren't sure if he was saying "mommy" or "Bonnie." Yeah. And so, one of the things that came to light when they arrested him mm-hmm. and of course there's 
tons of people like us out there on the internet that are like, well, right. I'm going to find out more about this guy. Yeah. Well, someone pulled up an old engagement announcement where Joseph James D'Angelo was going to marry a woman named Bonnie. Oh. And so there was the, the engagement announcement in the paper. Uh-huh. But when they looked at the records, there was no marriage license ever issued. Oh. So. Was she a victim? I wonder. No. No? Uh, okay. But if he was crying and saying, I'm sorry, Bonnie. Yeah. Or I hate you, Bonnie. Uh-huh. It sounds like he never got over the Bonnie situation. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't think he did. <laughs> no. Uh, I was actually telling Chris um, over, over lunch that one of the things that I find to be the most amusing is that throughout the, the book... It is mentioned that he is not very well endowed. Oh. And now that he's been caught, everybody knows that he's not well endowed. I'm like, ha. But didn't you say that that was part of the evidence? Like the, yes. when they were talking to so, people? So the 70s were a crazy time. Uh-huh. They were a crazy time. There's several times here where my notes are just, the 70s were a crazy time. <laughs> so... One of the cold case officers, detectives that was working on the case um, that Michelle McNamara had contact with, uh, was talking about how when he was looking over the files and things like that, people, like, men were just eliminated for all kinds of reasons without really being investigated. Okay. You know, and so one of them was that, like, there was this one guy that they let go because the sister's friend like went skinny dipping with him and said that he was not that he was that he was well endowed okay so obviously not him (laughs) (laughs) and i'm just like frame of reference here (laughs) like and so yeah he's just like and so he was crossed off the list wow (laughs) i'm just like the 70s man crazy time (laughs) well you know her sister's friend said (laughs) While they were skinny dipping. Yeah. <laughs> we're not going to, like, actually check out alibis or anything like that. Nah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is clear, <laughs> solid evidence. Right. Do you have a comparison yeah. that they went by? Yeah. That <laughs> Sorry, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> so, one of the things that I read in here was... Officer McGowan, and this is when they think that he went from breaking in and attacking couples Mm -hmm. to breaking in, attacking couples, and then murdering them, that this was the turning point for him. Okay. Um, They were chasing um, who they thought was the ransacker, Mm -hmm. and he, um, Officer McGowan caught up to him. And so he fired a warning shot, and the suspect stopped, and he was, you know, turned around that he was going to surrender, and he started to beg, you know, my God, don't hurt me, Uh, see, my hands are up, and so he goes over there to to try to, to, you know, arrest him, and he's walking closer to him, Mm -hmm. and um, he just draws a gun out of his coat pocket and shoots at the officer. Oh. And so he falls back. He he was fine. Like, he didn't get hit or anything okay. like that. Mm-hmm. But the, the guy got away. Yeah. And so 
1976, um, he decided to, uh, because he was one of the few that they think that he actually came face to face with the person, but he couldn't give any real details because it was dark. And oh, yeah. he only saw him for, for a bit when he turned around because he turned around with a gun. Uh-huh. And so he was more focused on that than on the guy's face. Yeah. And so th- he decided that he was going to do hypnosis. Like he was going to go and do some hypnosis. And this was the sentence here that I put a little marker at. At Parker Center, the two Vizala detectives met with Captain Richard Sandstrom director of the LAPD's hypnosis unit. And I'm like, the 70s were a crazy time. Wow. So the hypnosis unit. (laughs) So I put a little flag there. So I was like. There could be a whole, like a whole show just about that. (laughs) The hypnosis hypnosis unit. unit. I'm just like, Wow. Wow. <laughs> hypnosis unit. We don't need no CSI. We've got no, hypnosis we got units. Right. <laughs> Crazy time. Psychics are mentioned fairly often in this uh-huh. book because, again, the 70s were a crazy time. <laughs> like, in uh, Dana Point in 1980... Patty and Keith Harrington were bludgeoned to death in their bed. Mm-hmm. Um, their fa- um, Keith's father, Roger Harrington, was the one that found them. And he spent the rest of his life obsessing over every detail and memory of Keith and Patty. And he was described as a very, like, no-nonsense, tough type of businessman. Mm-hmm. But at, towards the end of his life, like, he, uh, he even consulted a psychic to try to figure out what happened. Wow. And I think that that, like, that detail alone, I think, like, really kind of just encompasses his desperation. Yeah. That he had no idea, like, no one knew who it was or really any other details other than, like, how they died. Yeah. And so he spent the rest of his life trying to figure it out. And Keith Harrington's brother, um, he's actually one of the people that helped California passed the like passed the DNA law where they are starting to keep track and have a database oh. and so forth. So when it was Good. figured out that in in the nineties that this guy was the East Area rapist and the original Night Stalker and the uh, again like all these departments weren't talking to each other. Yeah, and so he lobbied and had and petitioned and had a a law Very passed. Cool. Mm-hmm. where people were getting DNA from people that were convicted and arrested and, like, keeping more of a database. And so he was actually one of the leading people on that. Hmm, that's really cool. The sheriff's department accepted an offer from a psychic who said she could identify the East Area Rapist. She chanted and ate raw hamburger. They looked into having the East Area Rapist biorhythm chart done, but were told it wouldn't work without his birth date. And I'm just like, holy moly, the 70s. (laughs) If we knew that. (laughs) That would narrow things down a little bit. Thanks for your time, lady. Thanks for your time. (laughs) I was like. (laughs) Which is a good good insight into how psychics work. (laughs) Yep, right. (laughs) 
So there was one other thing where I was like, oh, okay, so this was still in the Sacramento in the, what was it, 1976 to 77? Mm-hmm. Uh, Detective Shelby, who was working the case there at the, for that little, that little area of time in the 70s, mm-hmm. he, um, he was patrolling South Sacramento, and so he was in a marked car, just sort of driving around and seeing if they could find you know, anybody acting weird or suspicious mm-hmm. or anything like that. And they saw there was a car that was just sort of driving around really slowly. And he um, wrote down their license plate because, mm-hmm. yeah, it was driving really slowly. And they were watching someone doing like watching a group of people playing tag football. Uh-huh. And at first it was like, well, they're all guys, except the quarterback was a young woman with long hair. Oh. And so he was driving by really slowly and just sort of like really watching. And so he was like, well, that's weird. Mm-hmm. And then when the car came back, he wrote down the make, model, and license plate. Mm-hmm. And he was like, if that car comes back again, we're pulling him over. Mm-hmm. Well, the car never did. And so he called in the license plate and it came back as unregistered. And I'm just like, there was a period of time where you could drive around in an unregistered car and it was no big thing. Yeah. Like it was just like, oh, well, whatevs. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> I'm just like, but at that point, I mean, they wouldn't have been able to find him anyway because it drove off. Well, he had written down the license plate and the make and the model the second time it came around. Right. But then it drove off. And so he called it in. By the time he got the information, the car was already gone. If it's unregistered, how do you find it? Well, exactly. Yeah. If it had been registered, they would have had a name and an address that they could have just gone to. Right. And so, like, but to me, I'm just like, that is so weird that there was a time where you yes. didn't have to register your car. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And now you do. <laughs> I'll keep that in mind every time different. I'm like, oh, man, I got to register my car. <laughs> and, oh, so also during this time period, the police suspected, the police had a suspect that paid the DMV for women's registration information, then followed them in his car. What? The DMV just sold women's information because some guy came up to the front desk and was willing to pay for it. How did people survive in the 70s? What the heck? (laughs) So once the police eliminated the guy, well, they eliminated him for whatever reason but then they got the dmv to stop selling private information well good for them <laughs> i mean that was like kind of common did sense this, here dmv <laughs> did this other dude do stuff i mean not not that she mentioned okay anyway but yeah i'm just like not that we know of yeah not that we know of <laughs> the 70s were a crazy time <laughs> Just that like, we do know. If he did, they never caught him, right? They never caught him. Yeah. I was just like, oh my gosh. You, it was like, you did what? You just, okay, sure. Oh yeah, women? Of course. Dude, from 18 to 25 with brown hair? Here you go. Here's our list. Some addresses too. Why not? What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> oh dear. Yeah, stuff like that that I was just like, Holy moly. Mm-hmm. The 70s were a crazy, crazy time where people just got away with stuff all the time. Well, yes, that's probably very true. 
what or do you think that um, this blog and her book and her notes influenced the police investigation at all? Oh, I think that she that I, I truly believe that this book helped solve this case. Really, um, a lot of the the a lot of the things that she talks about, like when she's talking about her and the more present tense. Mm-hmm. Um, She's communicating with the cold case detectives. She's okay. finding out things. She's sending it to them. Like, a lot of times what she's talking about is she's like, oh, my gosh, I have this, you know, I have a lead. And so she'll email them. And the, the cold case detective is, you know, he's always really nice to her. And he's just like, yeah, we looked into that. But she was always sending him things and always continuing to investigate. Uh-huh. But I think one of the the main things about this book that helped catch this guy is that it's been 40 years. Wow. And suddenly, he's all over the place. The Golden State Killer, best-selling book. Yeah. And people are talking about it, and people are... It's back in the public eye. Mm-hmm. And so, in 1980... In Ventura, this is also one of the awesomest things here. So there was a special cold case unit that was to deal with the sudden influx of the new leads. Yeah, um, it was started in 1997. So the DNA happened, and so they were getting all these new leads. And so they started a countywide law enforcement unsolved element. What? You want to know why? Because it spells clue. And what was that for? <laughs> for cold cases. <laughs> Agents of Clue. Yep. <laughs> Countywide law enforcement unsolved element. <laughs> Unit. <laughs> I would never be as good at naming things as these people are. <laughs> I'm just going to say. <laughs> we, really wanted to, we really want the acronym to be Clue. Clever. So, investigator Larry Poole was transferred into Clue from the Sex Crimes Unit in February of 1998. The reason I'm mentioning him is because he was probably my favorite out of all the police officers that were mentioned mm-hmm. here. Um, because he. Seemed like he was probably made for cold cases. Uh, he never worked undercover. It was hard for people to imagine that he could. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was my favorite part. He once interrogated a serial killer on death row in another state about a missing woman in Southern California. Um, about a missing woman in Southern California that the police suspected him of killing. Mm-hmm. So Poole suggested that the killer tell him where to find the body. It was the right thing to do for his conscience, for the woman's family. The killer began mild negotiations remarking about the better conditions in California prisons. Maybe a transfer could be negotiated in exchange for information. Poole organized his papers and stood from the table. You'll die here, he said, and walked out the door. (laughs) And I'm like, I love you. Yeah, not playing this game. Yeah. He was just like, meh. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So... He was probably my favorite. And there was a lot of really good detectives. Uh-huh. 
throughout this entire entire book. Um, there was one though that I had a couple of notes that had expletives oh. in it because um, so Larry Crompton was a detective that worked on. There was so many different mm-hmm. detectives because there was so many different areas and so forth. And again, they never really talked to each other until it was all put together and then they had to form clue. <laughs> <laughs> they got a clue. <laughs> um, but Larry Crompton, who worked on um, one of some of the cases, he wrote a book called Sudden Terror. And it was, a, you know, about the East Area Rapist. Mm-hmm. And there was um, one of the survivors that I think they call, I think she calls her Kathy, but I don't think that's her na- her real name. I think that's just a pseudonym. Okay. She does that a lot for mm-hmm. people that survived that don't want their names out there. Yeah. She um, has pseudonyms for them. Um, but he describes her demeanor during the police interview as almost seeming as if she's reliving the ultimate turn on. And this is how he writes about her. Like, he writes about her um, details about her life, like, very personal details about her life that he has no business sharing. Uh Um, He says he feels sorry for her husband and son. The other detective was writing this stuff about... Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Uh, One of the detectives wrote a book called Sudden Terror about Uh the East Area Rapist. And, yeah, this is how he was describing one of the victims. And he... uh, Rates her looks against other victims. Uh, favorably, but still. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my um, gosh. He's, his portrayal assumes that there's only one way to respond to a violent sexual attack. It lacks compassion and understanding. For example, he describes derisively how she told police that she asked for a glass of water first when the East Area Rapist demanded that she'd filleted him without considering that for a terrified victim, a plea for water could be a stalling tactic. And I'm just like, wow. Mm-hmm. Wow. So you went from, oh, I really like this guy to... Well, this was a totally <laughs> different guy. Well, that's what I'm no- I mean. Uh, one detective is, oh, yeah, he's the good I, one. I love this, this guy. The- and I'm just like, oh, man, yeah. <laughs> yeah, my little note here about him. How did his book sell? You know, I don't know. I don't know if his book did sell. But, you know, it's it's an older older book because it came out, I think, before they connected everything. Okay. But, yeah, I was just like, oh, my gosh. I couldn't believe that that's how he would talk about her. Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. And I think that... And put see, it in writing uh-huh. for everybody to see. Yep. And she uh, was furious, of course, about it. Um, He chose to call her Sunny. Like, instead of, that was her pseudonym. And I'm just like, wow. Wow. Right. But there is so much, like, so much information in the the book. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. the part that wasn't written by her, the part three that her um, research assistant and friend worked on, that was probably the only thing that was really kind of hard to read just because it wasn't as 
fluid or yeah Mm -hmm. yeah it was very much a here's a bunch of data oh okay and so it's just like okay all right yeah yeah well it looks like it's a very small portion yes yeah she did a lot of a lot of it before um but yeah there was just a lot of the last part there so do you know when she started her blog and started doing her research on this uh i don't remember her blog's been going on for a while um this she's been working on for quite some time i think but it became more of an obsession towards the the last part of her life Mm -hmm. and actually one of the i think one of the reasons that she was taking some of that medication was that this had become very heavy on her Oh. That she was having trouble sleeping and she was very anxious and that this was taking a toll on her. See, and we talked about that earlier about mm-hmm. this guy and yeah. Yeah. So, so I she can believe that. Yep. Well, I'm glad for her that this has come to light today. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I was just, yeah, when I read that, I was like, that's. That's amazing. I wish she was here to see it. Right. Mm-hmm. And that other guy, the dad. Yeah. Of that family. Yeah. yeah. Richard Harrington. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so one of the things that they thought was a part of his killing spree, but they they couldn't piece it to him, was that a couple in... Rancho Cordova mm-hmm. in Sacramento was out walking their dog and they were just shot. Like someone just shot them in the street. And so some of the police officers thought that it was related that maybe they had stumbled across the, the Golden State Killer while he was prowling oh, mm-hmm. and for some reason decided to kill them. Because for the most part, like several people, this was the other thing also, 70s, weird. There's someone out in my backyard prowling around. Hey, buddy, what are you doing? Right. And then he runs away. Uh-huh. And it's just like, police? No, let's not call the cops. I'm just going to be like, hey, you, you, what you doing? Yeah. Looking into my neighbor's window? Sup? <laughs> and I'm just like, are you crazy? He's like, call the cops. And so he would just run away. So this was kind of a weird thing that he would shoot these people. Right. Just like they caught him prowling and so he shot them when most of the time he would just take off running. So curious question, was there, did he do anything in that area after he shot those two? Yes, I do believe that he did. Um, now with knowing who he is and the, and the fact that he was a police officer uh-huh. um. In the ne- in the neighboring town of Ren- from where Rancho Cordova was, mm-hmm. the the guy that was killed, Brian uh, Maggiore, he was a base police officer at Mather Air Force Base, and so and that was um, the neighboring town of where he was a police officer at. Okay, and then he was in the military too. So uh-huh. yeah, so connection. now they think that maybe he recognized him. Oh. And maybe he was all like, hey, Joe, what's going on? Right. And he didn't want to give up his strategy for mm-hmm. that. That's ridiculous. One, how would he explain? Like, 
you know. Yeah. What are you doing? Uh, certainly not looking into this window. <laughs> you know? Yeah, <laughs> like, exactly. How are you going to explain? And also, even if you do give a reasonable explanation and then someone gets attacked. Right. How's this Air Force police officer not going to piece that together and be like, hey, you know who I saw that was really weird? You remember uh-huh. that guy? Maybe we should tell the cops about that. Right. So maybe that's why he killed them was that they did catch him prowling and recognized him. Wow. The thing I love about the map that's in front of this book uh-huh. is that it tells you like who was attacked mm-hmm. or who the murder, like who was murdered where. So yes, his DNA matched. Also, today is DNA Day, which I think is amazing. Really? Yeah. Yes. All kinds of connections today. I know. Huh. So crazy. So crazy. Um, at the end of the... So the book has a forward, or no, has an introduction by Jillian Flynn of Gone Girl fame. Has an afterword by Patton Oswalt, who was her husband. Okay. And the very last thing in the book letter to an old man and it is the perfect way to close the book like she wrote a letter to the golden state killer basically saying that she's sure that his time is up that someone's going to come knocking on his door and that he's going to be caught that she's she's sure of it all right so that's just all too freaky (laughs) okay You win. <laughs> that was pretty cool. That was so much. So is one copy in our library going to be enough? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Everybody might want to read up on the Golden State Killer. <laughs> Especially Michelle's book. I'll take out the note that has the expletive on it before I put it back on the shelf. <laughs> All marked up with bunnies and happy. Yeah, eyes. I've got tons of little bunny markers on here, like little post-it note-shaped bunnies that yes, I put to flag. I was important wondering parts. if you were going to take a picture of that and use it for. Our I do. I've already taken a picture of that uh-huh. because I've had to show people. <laughs> <laughs> I, just, I just finished this book. Look at this thing. Some of it is just the way that she wrote something that I thought was amazing. Uh-huh. And other things was like, hypnosis unit? Right. What? <laughs> <laughs> Where do I get a job there? <laughs> Sadly, I don't think they have hypnosis units anymore. Oh. Because the 70s were a weird time. <laughs> and they're over. <laughs> I mean, we got DNA testing now, but... No hypnosis units. Right. So, yeah. Just a lot. She also talks about how she became hooked on true crime was that there was an actually an unsolved murder in her neighborhood. A oh. teenage girl was killed in a dark alley. And that's kind of what sparked her her interest in true crime. Mm-hmm. And she talks a little bit about that. She also talks a little bit about her relationship with her mom. Um, and her mom was a little distant. 
they were as, as close as they could be, but she always felt like there was kind of a distance there. Mm-hmm. And um, not that they had a bad relationship or anything like that. They just weren't as super close, I think, as she would have liked. Yeah. Um, but there was also like 11 kids. So. <laughs> yeah, that could do it. She had a lot of kids. <laughs> Um, so she does talk a little bit about herself. She talks a, lot, a little bit about Patton Oswalt. Um, and he sounds like a really great guy, like mm-hmm. very supportive of her. Um, I can't, you know, I'm sure a lot of people wouldn't be all that enthused about her waking up in the middle of the night and being like, oh my gosh, I have this idea. Yeah. Or, um, she opens up the book talking about how she was online going through online stores and um, looking for, because he would steal things from the homes, but he would steal things like cufflinks or rings or personal items. Uh-huh. He wouldn't take, uh, and that was kind of the thing about the scenes where people would come, like the police would show up. And I think in one scene, he had dragged the TV out into the backyard and then just left it there. So kind of to make it look like he was stealing, uh-huh. but he really wasn't. Okay. Uh, but he would take personal items. He'd take rings and uh, cufflinks and things like that. Uh-huh. And so in one of the police reports, one of the police officers did like a little drawing of the cufflinks that had been stolen, that had been passed down. So they were a family heirloom, Mm -hmm. not necessarily valuable in, you know, monetary worth, but definitely valuable to them. Mm -hmm. And so she was scouring online vintage stores, trying to find these cufflinks. Uh And she, um, she thought she found them for $8 on some online vintage store. And so she bought them immediately Uh and paid $40 for overnight shipping. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Like, that's, I think, the moment where I was like, you and I could be friends. (laughs) Because that's some craziness right there. She's all like, I think this is it. Dedication. I'm going to buy it. (laughs) And I want it now. And I want it tomorrow. (laughs) Yeah. But she went in and woke, woke her husband up. And she was just like, I think I found him. And he didn't have to ask her what she was talking about uh-huh. or anything like that. Like, he seemed very, very supportive. And then when she passed, like, he did everything he could to get this book out there. Yeah. And today with the news, like, his Twitter feed has been, you know, like. Oh, I can imagine. Yeah. He's all like, Michelle, you know, I think you did it. Mm-hmm. I think you caught him. Yeah. And I, I think she did play a big part in that. I do. So, yeah, so sorry, going back to the cufflinks. Did she, um, when she got them, what did she do? I mean. Took them to the police. Oh. At this point, she had made contacts with the, with the, she, I think, talked to, if not all, almost all of the police officers that had worked some part of this case. Uh-huh. Um, and she was in contact with the cold case detectives that were that are, you know were currently working on the case uh-huh. and so she went and talked to when she met up with one of them um he took her on a on a drive to like 
each scene location mm-hmm. and talked to her about it and she told him different leads and ideas that she had about the case and that's usually when he was like yeah we looked into that or you know yeah uh, very nice you know very nice about it not just being like yeah yeah we thought about that 20 years ago michelle but you yeah. know it was like good detective work yeah we, we thought about that or we looked into that and okay um and so she gave him the cufflinks and he took them to surviving members of the family and uh-huh. was put into contact with other people that would know would be able to identify the cufflinks and he called her back and was like no they're not like, they're, those aren't it Aww. like they looked very very close uh-huh. like a lot of the family was like well that looks like them but i'm not sure yeah until finally like someone that really did know what they looked like told them that the, those weren't it wow darn it yeah one well, of the cool. things that they, that she talks about is um like 23 and me in ancestry.com yeah. so when you take your dna and send uh-huh. it off to find out where you're from yeah they have this whole ginormous database family members of his if he had any uh-huh. None of them had been arrested because, you know, for a felony because they take your DNA. Right. So, but that doesn't mean that someone's not out there trying to find out their family tree. Mm-hmm. And if they could get a cousin or a brother or, you know, someone. Somebody that was close to mm-hmm. them. Like a good genealogist. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, you're related to this person. This person's related to this person. Yeah. What were you doing from 1976 to 1986? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> hmm, that sounds a little suspicious. Uh, but, you know, and, and I'm just thinking through this whole DNA thing as far as it being uh, abused. Mm-hmm. You know, you could say, oh, we'll only use it for like situations like this. Right. It's a major thing we're trying to find, but then it, you know, oh, but what about this? And oh, what about that? And mm-hmm. then you next thing you know, they're, yeah, it's a slippery it slope. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's what I mean when I say that I understand where they're yeah. coming from on that. Uh-huh. You know, people are doing this because they want to find out more about where they're, they come from. Um, I personally don't understand that. Uh-huh. But that's just me. <laughs> you know, some people are like, genealogy and family tree. And I'm like, why? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I guess if you got the money to burn, burn it. <laughs> well. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I just finished reading the whole Cleopatra's mm-hmm. de- daughter. And it's like, that would be kind of cool to know that you were descendant from somebody cool. You know? I, yeah. And I think that's probably what the whole draw is for that. Yeah. Is... Am I related to anybody famous? Yeah. Yeah. So. Well, this guy's now famous. Yeah. Not for the reason he would want to be. And maybe that's what we want to know, too. <laughs> Did we have any crazies in our family? <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, that's... I was just... I was so shocked. Yeah. happy. Yeah. I was like, oh, my God, they got it. I had to text a few people. I love it. There was one woman who she and her her teenage daughter were having like 
awful mom daughter time you mm-hmm. know like they were fighting all the time and the teenage daughter decided that she was gonna run away and so she was crashing at a friend's house and she called her mom to see if she could go and pick up her swimsuit because it was summertime and her mom was like no you know just trying to set the boundaries that their counselor had suggested Mm -hmm. and so the teenage girl like flips out on her and you know says some horrible things to her and says you know why don't you just get out of my life and then the next day she gets a phone call that she's got to come home because her mom was dead and i cannot imagine like living with that right for the rest of your life that the last things that you said to your mom was get out of my life yeah Mm -hmm. so there's a lot of things like that throughout the book that i'm just like that's some hard stuff right there yeah um one of the one of the few victims that was a single woman and home that was bludgeoned to the because at this point he had been targeting couples mm-hmm. um the husband was actually in the hospital like he'd gone to the hospital for something like, okay. i don't remember what it was i don't even know if she really said what it was uh-huh. but he, he was at the hospital and he was going to stay there overnight so he normally would have been home uh-huh. but he wasn't and so the wife was attacked and the police, you know, suspected him at first. It's like, because, I mean, that's kind of the perfect alibi if you're going to have your wife killed. Right. That you're at the hospital. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. People, nurses, doctors seeing you. And so. Yeah. Um, and his brother was actually in the police academy. And so he was tasked with cleaning up the crime scene after it was done. Oh. Him and his fiance, who was a about to become a nurse practitioner. Mm-hmm. So two very people, two people that could, you know, just be like, very clinically let's get this done yeah and we'll process the emotions later yeah and so they cleaned up the scene Um, a true testament to how well michelle mcnamara writes cleans up the scene you know and they're very precise about it and when he gets into the into his car to drive away that's when he starts getting emotional about it Mm -hmm. you know looking at the house and realizing that his sister-in-law was dead and you know, yeah. as a police officer, he's also like, the main suspect's going to be my brother until they know otherwise. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, that chapter ends with him saying that he has to go and um, has to go to the, to the police and talk to the CSI guys because they had missed something that he had found. And she ends the chapter with revealing that it was a part of her skull. Oh, and so he was taking it to the crime scene people, and I'm just like, that Ugh. is hard stuff. Like yeah. I was just like, man, no <laughs> kidding. And then he like after the funeral, you know, he's sitting down with his brother and he's talking to his brother, and you know, his brother is crying about the you know the loss of his wife and that the police think that he did it, and he just looks him straight in the eyes like, did you? And he's all like, no. You know, mm-hmm. yeah, and, and he he believed him, he believed his brother, um, and it was true he he didn't. But right at this point, they hadn't connected everything, which is uh, makes me think that his brother was a cop, and then why was he why was he targeted? Was that why he was targeted because of his brother being a cop? No, it was, it, it was, was the neighborhood. It was just random. When 
when he would hit a neighborhood, mm-hmm. the houses were close together. It was always like okay. here and then a couple of blocks over. He would hit this house okay. and then a couple of blocks over, a street over, he'd uh-huh. hit that house. And they were, you know, so they were close in time, close in area and proximity. So just curious, did they lock their doors? I mean, at wh- this time period when the, like when uh-huh. a lot of times they did not. Okay. Like, um, Keith and Patty Harrington, when their father, when, uh, Keith's father went over there and he's the one that found their bodies. He, uh, he was expected for dinner. Mm-hmm. And so he shows up, both their cars are there, but the door's locked, which is odd. Uh. And I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> so he gets the key and opens up the door and goes in and nothing looks amiss. Uh-huh. Like nothing looks wrong. Um, and so he, he thinks it's weird that no, that their cars are there, but where are they? And he was invited over for dinner. Yeah. So for them not to be there, that was kind of odd. So he walked around the house, you know, checking on everything. And he mm-hmm. almost walks past their bedroom. Mm-hmm. But then he looks and he sees that there's a lump in the bed. And so he goes and he pulls back the, the comforter and he discovers their bodies. Oh, my gosh. Wow. And so, so yeah, it was like a time period when... People didn't lock their doors. Mm-hmm. The DMV sold your personal information. <laughs> it's all willy nilly. <laughs> yeah, it's <was> ridiculous. <laughs> but throughout the, yeah, I'm, a lot of my notes are like the seventies were crazy. How did anybody survive? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Say, so, gee, there's a serial killer. I would <laughs> well. <laughs> it's all the things you can get away with in the seventies. So what's your next book, Denise? I don't know. You're still processing this one? <laughs> yes. Yeah. I can imagine. It was really good. It was really, really good. Very, very timely. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. I don't know what my next book is either. It'll be a surprise. Okay, so that was us answering the do we like murder question. <laughs> <laughs> No, um, we don't like murder, but yes, we do like murder. Murder of the genre. There you yes. go. <laughs> no. Not the actual Not act, the act of, murder. of murder. Right. As, as you obviously demonstrated in your conversation. Yes. I never got the impression that any of you enjoyed reading about what was done to these people. So, so, if our audience had any question, yeah. there's, there you go. Maybe it's more of the detective in me. That's yeah. I think that's really one of the big things about the genre that I like is mm-hmm. is the detective work. Yeah. And people solving these cases. Yeah. You know, and survivors. You know, it gives me hope. Like to hear a survivor talk about their story and mm-hmm. making it out of this horrible situation. Well, and it it doesn't just happen to that person. Mhm. The victims are also the family members and yeah. the people who are left behind because it is it does affect them in, mm-hmm. in so many ways. Yeah, there's just a lot about the genre that I really like. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So Don and I are planning on doing this segment once a month. That's the plan. Yeah, yeah. So occasionally you'll see on the Long Overdue podcast a uh, "Do We Like Murder" episode, and that'll be Don and I talking about murder. 
true crimes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, we hope you've enjoyed our our talks. Um, hope we didn't spoil too much. <laughs> well, I guess they probably should have already known. <laughs> anyway, it's still worth reading. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I only talked a, a bit about, like, there's a lot of notes here. Yes, I did not notes. go through all of that. So there's definitely <laughs> things to still discover, and I'll be gone in the dark. All, all right. right. Well, we'll catch you next time. Thanks for listening. <laughs>